Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Capital Club podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. Today, I'm very honored to have Spencer Jacob with me today. Spencer, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I am great. And so for our listeners who aren't familiar already, uh, Spencer is the author of The Revolution That Wasn't, which we're going to get into here in a minute, and editor of The Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street column, which I've been a fan of your column for a long time. So kudos to you. I've got to ask, you know, you touch on this in the book. I'd love to hear kind of the thought process from that transition for being kind of a Wall Street trader, you know, finance executive to covering the street as a journalist. What was the impetus behind that move? Mm-hmm. What was that experience like, et cetera? You know, I, it's a rare transition, obviously, because it does unfortunately involve a bit of a, a pay cut and it's a different career. So once you've done one thing for a while, it's it's scary and difficult to make a change. You know, I, I fell into finance really by accident. I was interested in doing some, I, I was always introspective. I was interested in doing something like being a historian. Journalism is not a career that I really knew about. I think I wrote for my my college paper and I always liked to write and things like that, but I, I never, never really occurred to me to do it. And uh, my parents were both refugees who grew up very poor, came to this country in their 20s. So I was always concerned with practical things like making money and having a nest egg too. And so when I heard about this career called investment banking, and I heard about it after I'd finished college, I became very interested. And I became very interested really just at first because you could make so much money doing it. I thought that was crazy. And especially not really knowing anything at first. And then I was at a graduate program at Columbia University, not not a business school program. And this uh, guy I knew who had been an investment banker told me all about it and said, if you want to do it, just take all the you could do it then, take all the finance and accounting classes at Columbia Business School. You're allowed to take as many as six classes a semester. I took them. 
I thought it was really interesting. I, I thought this was a, something that I could be good at. I really found it fascinating. It's a whole new world for me then. And I got a job doing it, working in emerging markets for almost a decade. And it was fun for you know, most of that time. And then I just got burnt out on it. I thought it was very interesting, but I wish that I could have more time just to talk to people, write, think. I was, you know, by that age, I was managing a, a team of 24 analysts. I was flying all over and it, it, you know, and I was frugal. And so I, I decided what's money for, if not to, to give you freedom to do something you really want to do. And financial journalism seemed like a natural fit that I met a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, a veteran reporter who was by then an editor sitting next to her on the plane. And two days later, I was in her office basically interviewing for a job. And that was almost 20 years ago. Yeah, I was going to ask, what's the time frame for when you made that move? Yeah. So that was about 20 years ago or almost 20 years ago. And then I spent nine and a bit years in finance. So yeah, 29 years that I've been you know, since out of grad school, basically, and doing this coming up on, on 30 years. So two thirds of my professional career has been as a journalist. It's, I've mainly been a journalist. And I've almost always been in commentary. So I, I run, as you said, the Hurt on the Street column, which is financial analysis and commentary. It's, it's an easy transition or a relatively easy transition for someone like me, because I'm used to taking a view. I'm comfortable doing it. I work with a bunch of reporters who you know, not only a couple of them came from backgrounds like mine, but they all have grown comfortable doing that, taking a look at something. You don't have to call up some expert and have them point out the obvious to you and sometimes not, you know, point out the wrong thing to you. You can look at something yourself and you can, you don't miss the the forest for the trees. I mean, it, it's heard on the street is, and our competitors are really good columns because you're reading stuff from a journalist who isn't beholden to management, isn't trying to get access unlike some analysts, unfortunately, and they're calling it like it is. And they're taking a 30,000 foot view instead of a hundred foot view of something that that's often really useful in, in finance. Yeah, absolutely. And I loved hearing that the segue into the job was from sitting next to somebody on a plane. It's incredible how many times that happens from people that I've had on the show, that that is the catalyst for this dramatic professional change. So I had Paul Sullivan on recently used to read right from the New York Times, left, uh, wrote this great book, the, the Thin Green Line. And one of the things that we got into with him that I'd be curious to hear your experience of, do you ever struggle with content for the column? Do you ever have challenges coming up with ideas? And have you ever tracked how many columns you've done? Oh my God, I've done so many columns. Yeah, no, I do struggle with ideas. So, and I, I'm on the other end of that conversation most of the time right now. So I do write from time to time, of course, for the Wall Street Journal. I'm, I guess I'm in the past, the editor of the Hurt on the Street column has not written, but I, I kind of only accepted the job if I could keep writing from time to time. But yeah, so definitely you're, you're always trying to think of something interesting and you have to think about something like, you know, are people going to find this interesting? Is this unique enough? Is this a crazy idea? What do I come up with? I used to write a column that ran for many years on the front of the money and investing section of the Wall Street Journal before I became herd editor called Ahead of the Tape. And that one was, it was pretty easy to come up with column ideas, but that was a nerve wracking in a completely different way. Ahead of the Tape wrote about something that was happening the next day. So a company report or an economic report or some indicator, and then you, you know picked one and you basically wrote about it before it happened. And how to look at it, how to examine it. And basically it was in print the day that, I don't know, big companies or Apple earnings came out, you know, and you wrote about it the day before. And then people read it in the paper and often 
they were reading it actually after the event had happened already. And so, you know, it had to kind of to look forward a bit. And yeah, and for Hurt on the Street, there are three kinds of columns that we do if you want to kind of split it up that way. They're kind of long, slow burning sort of thematic things that we'll talk about for weeks. And I talk about this with my columnists. Then there are things that that are kind of off the calendar. We know that this company is going to come out with an investor day or come out with earnings and let's prep for that. And we're putting that on the calendar, definitely going to write about Bank of America earnings. And then there are things that just happen. You know, Elon Musk is buying Twitter. Oh my God. You know, and then you, you know, you kind of gather your thoughts. And of course, those things happen all the time, more and more lately. And so those are the three kinds of, of things. And then you just fill the ca- populate the calendar with those. And lately, it, the, the business world has been so crazy and interesting that it, it's actually a struggle to decide what not to write about, how to prioritize, because you just only have so much time. Yeah, which is a perfect segue into your book. But before we get there, I am curious, when you were actually writing the column yourself, whichever one, I know you mm-hmm. referenced multiple how ritualistic were you with your day and your timing and your schedule? Did you follow a certain program or was it just kind of by the seat of your pants? No, absolutely. Uh, when I wrote a daily column, I would be doing the same thing around the same time of day. There were some things, I mean, you kind of have to have this kind of, you think ahead two or three days, you know, in terms of what am I going to do on Thursday? What am I going to do on Friday? When am I going to, you know, who do I get to cover for me on a day that I'm off or have to take the kid to the doctor or something? But, you know, like I never took a sick day or anything like that because, I mean, then there'd be like a white space in the paper. So there's that pressure too. You could never be late. You could never mess things up in that way. But yeah, around, I, I would basically try to file the column by a certain deadline. You know, newspapers have print deadlines. People like, will say to me or think young people are thinking get into journalism doesn't it bother you having all those deadlines and I, it doesn't i mean that's the way that i go about doing anything it's the way i went about writing this book where i i basically you know and a book is obviously completely different it's not like stringing together a hundred different columns you know a book has a completely much longer arc to it and this book definitely does has a narrative arc to it so that it's not like writing for a newspaper but it does help to set artificial deadlines for yourself for different chapters and different tasks and different research things, just like I do in, in my day as a journalist and just as I set for the people who work for me at Heard on the Street. I mean, it's that deadlines really make the world move forward for me and, and probably for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's get into the book, uh, The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. What was the genesis behind writing the book? So, you know, being home for COVID, I I did see a couple of people who I I follow a lot of authors or people who want to be authors on social media. And they say, wow, what, how crazy would you have to be to write a book during the pandemic? Which I I took the opposite view. I'm like, I'm usually in the newsroom all day, you know, and gone 12 to 14 hours a day, I guess, you know, in terms of going to New York City and all the way back and then staying late. And, you know, when do you really have time to do something that's a side project. You're constantly being interrupted. And then it's awkward to get on the phone and call a hundred people, you know, you know, clearly everyone hears what you're saying in a newsroom and be working in a side project, even if you've gotten permission and all that stuff, which you have to do. So I, I felt like the pandemic as awful as it was being stuck at home was a good opportunity to 
start a project like that. This is my second book. And I had a few ideas and they just weren't going anywhere. I had these half written proposals. And then one morning in January, 2021, I have three boys. My oldest boy who was home, he wasn't supposed to be home then, but he was home because of COVID as a college student. And now he's, he's graduated from college now said, Hey dad, are you, are you going to write about GameStop? And like, well, why would I write about that? So I look up the ticker at GME and I was like, oh, it's doubled in the last couple of days. Let's see why. Like, oh, they they talked about it on Wall Street Bets, which I, it's a, a Reddit subform. I can explain, it's a subreddit. I can tell you what that is. That's pretty central to the whole story that I told. But I, w- I had been aware of it for about a year and you'd see stocks rocket temporarily because they were talked about on the forum. I didn't think it was any different. And he told me like, yeah, my friend bought it a couple of days ago. He's doubled his money as well. He, I would recommend selling pretty soon. Not that I'm giving out financial advice to your friends. And he said, no, 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 he can't sell. He won't sell. And so then that piqued my curiosity and I started reading the board and I, I saw that basically something was being attempted out in the open on this, this internet forum, the subreddit that had not been done basically in a century, which was attempting a stock market corner, except instead of it being done by a few rich guys in a smoke-filled room. It was being done by 1.1 million people on an internet forum that anyone could have read. And it had been being discussed openly for several weeks at that point and was just about to reach its crescendo. The first articles had not begun to appear yet, but I, I was flabbergasted and I immediately sent, forgot about my other proposals and sent an email to the acquisitions editor at, at Penguin Random House and Portfolio, the imprint that I had written for before, who I didn't even know because of a new person, just knew her name. And she wrote back, you know, right away, like, thank goodness. And like, oh, I haven't heard about that. Do you have a proposal? It's like, no, 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 you don't understand. This is happening now. This is going to be in the news. This is going to be a very big finance story. And I didn't realize how big it turned into a much bigger thing, even than I, I realized it would be at the time. But I, I knew it was something special. And I just, I knew I had to write about it. And at the beginning, you know, for those of you who, who listen to this, who remember that week and late night talk show hosts and politicians and everyone was talking about it and it was the most traded security in the world. You know, it was interesting, but the first headlines that came out about it were sort of the way I felt about it, which was Wall Street gets a black eye, tables are turned. And it took me a couple of days to really realize what really was going on, hence the title of the revolution that wasn't, which is that this was just a bonanza for Wall Street. It was touted as a, a, a way to stick it to the man and as a way to make a lot of money while sticking it to the man, like a twofer. And it was neither. And so I hate to be a party pooper, but it was neither. And it was not really until the dust settled that I realized that. Right. And, and I want to get there. You, you explained some of the kind of the Reddit, the subreddit, mm-hmm. Wall Street bets, et cetera. You know, the mechanism for the book is really clever. It alternates between kind of this real-time accounting of what happened and then some more macro trends and explanations of the underpinnings behind that. But to set the table here, could you maybe give kind of a synopsis of who the main characters were, how this played out, what Wall Street bets, what context that had within the greater play? Yeah, I mean, the really, the kind of the crescendo of the book really takes place over several days in January, 2021 and early February, 2021. But to really understand the story and, you know, by the way, I mean, the the alternating chapters, I was thinking of people who know about finance and work in finance, but I was also thinking about people who are just educated, who don't know anything about finance. And how do you explain these things that are going on? There are a couple of parts of it 
that if you were to, you could explain it in a very wonky, complicated way that would make people's eyes glaze over. And so I wanted to explain it in a way where the reader learns something about short selling, about options, about you know gamma squeezes, about what social media is like and how it's changed and how it's different from Yahoo message boards that existed a generation earlier, how the algorithmic nature of social media played into this, how the pandemic played into this, how the financial crisis and the experience the kind of the that left young people with people who were really young, like kids at the time, but were now young adults during this episode, left them with how free trading apps led to all this. And so I weave it, it all together. And so the story, you know, I, I go back as, as far as like the, the 70s in terms of like, you know, when when trading used to be really, really expensive, and then all of a sudden it was deregulated and fixed commissions went away. That's kind of the beginning of the story because you have this long march towards trading becoming free, which really helped to spark this more than 10 million young people over the course of less than a year jumping into the stock market and getting interested in stuff like this. And that was the dry kindling for this crazy fire you know, that, that happened. The story itself, though, is that there are these things called meme stocks. And a meme is something that's an image on the internet that conveys a message. It's like a hieroglyphic. It's not a not words necessarily. It can have words attached to it, but it's a meme that conveys something, and that's very popular on social media. I'm sure, al- almost all of us have seen lots of memes, even if that's not what we call them. And some of them are used again and again, and you you know exactly what they they mean after a while. Some of the more commonly used ones, and these meme stocks were promoted by these emotional memes, these hieroglyphs, instead of you know what a, a professional might you know get like a ten page research report saying, we think that IBM is a buy because blah, 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 and here's our, our share price. They're like, YOLO, I'm buying, you know, this is going to the moon, or this is, you know, the dog sitting saying this is fine with like the room burning around him, this is awful. You know, I mean, the memes were the kind of the, the way that this was propelled, and the meme stocks were the ones that really went way beyond their fundamental value. But the thing that I noticed first, and this this is crucial to understanding the story, is and you have to understand what short selling is and how short selling is done. Short selling is this completely legitimate practice. Uh, it gets a very dirty name on on Wall Street, which is basically taking the opposite bet of of what you or I m- might do with our own money. You know, you generally you buy some stocks, you want to collect the dividends, you hope that they go up over time. Hopefully, you hold them for a good long period of time. If they go down, that's too bad. But short sellers do the exact opposite. They can only profit if the stock that they've bet against goes down. They bet against it without owning it. So they are not an owner like you. They are the opposite of an owner. They borrow it from an owner and they sell it with the hope that its price will go down. What that means is that they have to be very careful at picking their spots because the most that they can make, the most, you know, you find a company that's going to go to zero, going to go bankrupt, you'll make 100% on your short sale. When it goes to, to zero, you can't make more, but whereas you can make thousands of percent if you pick the right stock. But then the opposite holds true. The most you could lose when you buy a stock or a fund is 100%. You know, unless you borrowed money, that's it. But a short seller can lose an infinite amount of money. And so when something happens that goes against their narrative, and these meme stocks, what they all had in common was that they were the real dregs of the of the market. They they had nothing going for them. They were heavily bet against by short sellers. They all went up 
well beyond what these mainly hedge funds who were in them thought they could go up. And so they had to basically buy at any price. And when you have to buy at any price, when there simply are not shares to purchase at any price, that's called a corner. That's like the extreme version of a short squeeze. And that's what was being attempted. It wasn't successful, but it was being attempted and they got pretty close to forcing a corner in some of these stocks, which means that, oh, you sold this stock short at $10. You have to buy it back for me at a million dollars. Or how about 2 million? Or how about 5 million? And I'm feeling generous by letting you buy it back for me for 5 million. You, you have to pay any price because you, you are legally bound to buy it back. There's an old saying from the 19th century, the notorious speculator, Daniel Drew, he who sells what isn't his and must buy it back or go to prison. And so that's the sort of, that's the, you gotta buy it back if there's a corner. Corners don't happen really anymore because we have the SEC and we have securities laws and you can't do that. But here was a corner that almost happened wide out in the, in the open and it cost some people billions of dollars in the matter of a few days. And that was the initial exciting part of the story that, that got to me. And I, I tell the crazy story, but there's a lot more than that. Right. And, and initially, the narrative was, like you suggested, this army of, quote unquote, retail investors are, you know, taking down the Wall Street heavies and doing it for the everyday man. But in the aftermath, the reality is, like most things, Wall Street still won the game at the end of the day. More market participants right. is better and yeah, I mean, that doesn't get nearly as much publicity as the initial brouhaha did. Yeah, that's right. And one legitimate criticism of, of journalists, you have a lot of illegitimate criticism of journalists, but one legitimate criticism is that you're sort of, you're selling the sizzle that headlines and, and whatever tend to kind of sometimes overplay things. And then once the dust settles, you don't really go back and, and write about things you don't as much. Well, the thing is that people, they do go back and write about things. I mean, there are lots of journalists writing about, about finance, and there are a lot of smart takes, not so much during necessarily, but definitely after the meme stock squeeze, lots of smart stuff was written. A lot of dumb stuff was written too, but a lot of smart stuff. But you're writing the, the first draft of history, and most people only read the first draft. So if you were reading articles about this, there's a high likelihood that you only were interested in it when it was happening, and then didn't go back and read that thousand word piece that came out afterwards that was more measured and, and nuanced. And being able to write a book, and this book came out, I, mean, I had to write very, very fast because books take a long time to write, but I wanted it to come out on the one year anniversary, and it did. And a book obviously can can take a, a step back. And you, know, you don't want to be a party pooper, but sometimes you have to be a party pooper. And this was not a revolution at all. It was a bonanza for Wall Street, and it wasn't a David and Goliath battle. Obviously, there are some young Reddit traders who made a lot of money. I don't deny that because in any mania, whatever it is, it can be Beanie Babies or it can be tulip bulbs or it can be Bitcoin or anything. There are going to be some people who say, yeah, I made a lot of money. There are going to be more people who claim to have made a lot of money than people who will sort of sheepishly admit that they lost a lot of money and that you should always remember that when you're talking to your neighbors at the barbecue and they're bragging about some hot stock score they made. There's a much higher likelihood of bragging than of, of a confession. But as a group, these young people were net contributors to already rich people on Wall Street and already rich people in corporate boardrooms who really mostly were just in the right place at the right time. And you have a couple of hedge funds that lost tremendous amounts of money. 
but a couple of hedgehogs are not Wall Street. Wall Street is a big place. And Wall Street is mainly made up of people who are middlemen. They're not really taking risks. They're certainly not taking risks with, with their own money if they are taking risks. They're doing it with other people's money. Even the people who lost a lot of money in this story were doing it with like college foundations money and pension funds money. And it's some of their own money too, but they'll be okay. They mainly were, were risking other people's money and collecting a nice chunk of change for doing it. And they just made a catastrophically bad decision in shorting these stocks and not, not seeing what was coming. But these young people, to them, these hedge fund managers, especially ones who sold stocks short, were like these cartoon villains. And they represented Wall Street. And they were the ones they wanted to hurt. And most of them still have this kind of totally skewed view of Wall Street, which is that Wall Street is made up of rich guys, you know, and, and they're bad and you want to hurt them. And most of the rich guys on Wall Street were either indifferent or making money. And I, I'm so surprised. Like, I, obviously, I know a lot of people from my days on Wall Street and from writing about Wall Street. I'm surprised by two things. Like, as I was writing the book, I told people, hey, this book is coming out. And people said, you wrote a book about that? You know, the Wall Street guys, like quite a few were like, oh, man, I, I sold calls on that thing. and I made $200,000 in an afternoon. What a bunch of idiots, you know. And then, or I'd run into neighbors who like, oh yeah, my, my nephew or my son, you know, was, yeah, he lost a bundle doing that, or he thought he was going to be really rich. And then he, it all vanished, you know, when they stopped trading in these stocks or when they, they stopped, they turned off the ability to buy these stocks or whatever, or even people my age, you know, who participated, although it was mainly people, I'd say it's, it's, it was primarily males between the ages of 18 and 35 who, who participated in, uh, in this and, you know, about a million of them. And so ultimately, you know, the trap they fell into is Wall Street doesn't have the game rigged, but more market participants are better for them and more transaction volume is better for them. Yeah. And Wall Street is nothing if not really good at, at marketing to people like a casino, you know, oh, you've got this opportunity to make a lot of money, come on to the door and, and we'll sit have a seat for you at the table. Totally. And I'm always hesitant to call Wall Street a casino because it is not. I mean, the thing about a casino is the longer you spend there, the more, you know, the greater the odds that you're going to, to lose your money. Wall Street is a place where wealth generally is built. Well, Wall Street is a place where you as an individual saver can build tremendous wealth over the years if you're prudent and, and careful. And it's a place where companies can make use of your savings and you know, the, the next Apple is out there. A lot of failed companies are out there too, but the next Apple is out there somewhere and it's raising money on Wall Street. So it's it's a place where those those two parts of our economy meet, the individual and and the company. But if you're extremely active on Wall Street, you are seriously harming your odds. There is a perfect correlation between level of activity and returns. And it's, it's inverse. That has been shown by study after study after study. The more often you transact, and even the more often you look at your investments. And you had these people on Robinhood, you know, people used to get a monthly brokerage statement in the mail, and they didn't have the internet, or they got a quarterly 401k statement. And, and they, didn't make, they made a lot of mistakes because of that. They'd see, oh man, my, my 401k fund is down 10%. I'm going to take some money off the table, which is exactly the wrong time to take money off the table. Or look look how well it's doing. I'm going to put more money in near a peak. I mean, people just are, are not good at, at you know, they, they follow the crowd the wrong way in each direction. But 
people on, on Robinhood who are active customers, Robinhood is the broker that was kind of at, really at the epicenter of this. It was the first really successful broker that had zero commissions and mainly had a younger clientele. They were checking their accounts seven and a half times a day on average, which is just completely counterproductive. So they it really was pretty close to a casino. And think about a casino. Are they sad when you make money? Was it, No, I mean, you go to a casino I don't spend very much time there, but I've been in, in casinos a, a few times. And you know, you'll have like bells clanging and lights flashing and a bunch of coins, or I guess now it's it's digital, but like, you know, kind of pouring out of a machine. And the casino just lost money that very second to the person who hit the jackpot. But it's not bad at all. Even if the person doesn't put a single additional coin into the machine and walks away with their winnings, which is rare. Everyone who saw that person making that money is excited by the prospect of them making the money, and it is an advertisement for their business. So they don't care. And even if that casino had a bad day, even if you won a million dollars from that casino and then you walked away and didn't even buy a drink at the bar, just kept it all and put it into your bank account after you pay taxes, that maybe that casino had a bad day, but they didn't have a bad week or a bad month. And every other casino on the street certainly... You know, people hear about your big score, it will make people more likely to show up. And then to just further the casino analogy, the casino has a lot of waiters. There are a lot of cab drivers that drive you to the casino. There are a lot of restaurants near the casino. All those people, when a lot of people show up at the casino, all those people do well too. And most of Wall Street is like the cab driver and the waitress and the, you know, the the person putting on the show and whatever. They they're not taking any risk at all. They're just benefiting from more people showing up. And most people on Wall Street is just the volume of business that they they care about. It's not the the direction that markets go. It's it's the people showing up that pay their bills. Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? There may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. Download it today at excelsiorgp.com slash download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com slash download. And this is a perfect segue into the zero commission space that you get into in the book with Robinhood, you know, was on the vanguard of this where it was, you know, free trades and like a lot of things, especially in social media world, which Robin had kind of, I don't know, bridges that gap between mm-hmm. fintech and, and social media in a lot of ways. If it's, free, and I tell my boys this, I've got a nine or six year old. If the service is free, it means you are the product. Totally. I mean, that's, that is so true. And it's, I think it's true in this case. And that had never obviously been the case up until the last several years. Trading was not free. Trading cost something. Trading used to cost a, a lot. Trading was obscenely expensive. Even if you look at something, you know, the first index funds were invented that, that you, you or I could invest in in the, the mid-1970s. Even that was expensive. You would pay a, a pretty big load to get in. And certainly if you bought stocks and then sold them, you had to have a, a fair bit of money in order for Wall Street to engage with you, to to take some of that money from you. And because of competition and technology, that's gone down and down and down. And what Robinhood called it was the democratization of finance. But here's the thing, finance has been democratized by technological change. 
trading doesn't have to be free. If trading costs $5 and you have a fair chunk of change, then it, it, the costs are already are negligible. But by taking the cost to zero, they kind of, they crossed a line and people mentally crossed a line. There's this thing called the, the zero price effect, where when something we all know that when something gets cheaper, you you tend to consume more of it up to a point, but it depends what kind of thing it is, right? If it's something that you only need a certain amount of, that's really just a utilitarian thing, your consumption of it will not go up that much. A snow shovel or something, you're not going to buy 10 snow shovels just because they cost a dollar, right? I mean, you only need one or two if you and you know whoever you live with both want to shovel it at the same time. I know you're in Nashville, so you're not thinking about snow. I <laughs> think about it up here in New Jersey. Snow shovel. We got two snow shovels, right? We're not, I'm not never going to buy 10. doesn't matter how cheap they are. But when something fun goes from costing a lot to a little and then crosses over to being free, I might use a crazy amount of it, especially if there's not really any limit on how much I can use it. Like phone calls, right? Used to, you know, you're probably old enough to remember when a long distance call was really expensive. And you'd be really, really quick talking to somebody or really think about it or write a letter maybe or something like that before email existed. Now long distance calling is free. And so you call people all over the country all the time just for no reason and chat with them or send a text. It's just not not something you think about. It's still, you have limited hours in the day that you can can talk to your friends and relatives. But trading stocks is something that is is really unlimited. And so you had people trading literally tens of thousands of times a year on this service because they perceived it as being free. It was on, you know, advertised as being free. It wasn't really free. And I can explain that, but it was advertised as being free. And so, and it was fun too. And so free and fun together can create an unhealthy amount of use of an activity. So maybe go into that, right? I mean, because you have these incredible statistics in the book where these big brokerage firms had record revenue profit during this period where, you know, supposedly, theoretically, per some of the headlines, the retail investor was winning, but it was really the back of the house was doing better than they ever had before. Yeah. And you had the confluence of a bunch of things that really sparked this. You had free commissions. You had one big broker that were one broker, rather. It wasn't big, Robinhood. Robinhood captured over a five-year period one out of every two brokerage accounts opened in the United States. So Schwab and E-Trade and Fidelity and Ameritrade, they're all kind of worried about it. There weren't really the customers that they tended to go after because a Charles Schwab likes a more affluent customer that they can sell a mortgage to and a debit card and a credit card and advisory services and stuff like that. And the, the median account size at, at Robinhood was 241 bucks, you know, which is just tiny, you know, and they didn't sell them other services. They were just, you know, they couldn't make money off of a customer so little money, but Robinhood could because some subset of those people was super duper active. And then these guys basically all Schwab started and then everyone within a short period of time, just months before the pandemic began, they didn't know the pandemic was about to begin, kind of threw in the towel and said, well, I guess we mostly don't make money on commissions these days. Anyway, let's just throw in the towel and we'll, we'll charge zero too. And they were totally surprised to see an explosion in business. It was a, a looked like a genius move in hindsight because everyone's business exploded. And then you had the pandemic and you had tremendous volatility during the pandemic. The stock market was more volatile during the pandemic by some measures than it ever has been because you had the stock market go from a record high in February 
2020 to a bear market losing over a third of its value in record time and then bounce back into a new bull market in by far record time. And that volatility to someone, you know, it's sickening to maybe to you or me who have savings in the market and then you see your nest egg shrink by a third and then kind of slowly recover and then by that August kind of get back to where it was before the pandemic. And hopefully you you didn't do anything dumb in the meantime, but it's, you know, it, it, it's kind of nerve wracking. But if you don't really have any savings, if you're 24 years old and, you know, and you got a stimulus check, which was found money anyway, and you have to save money and then you're brand new to stock market investing, it's just all exciting. It's like the best casino on earth. And during the one year period from the bear market low, following the, the appearance of and the lockdowns for COVID-19 and a year after, 96% of American stocks rose, which is you know an unprecedented amount. So it was like shooting fish in a barrel. And the stocks that this crowd bet on, pretty much 100% of them rose. And if you look at profitless stocks, or if you look at the 100 most popular stocks on Robinhood or anything that was really in the kind of the wheelhouse of this group, it did a lot better than than the kind of stocks that you probably own. You know, it wasn't ExxonMobil, you know, and IBM or whatever, just not, they did fine, but companies that don't make money and companies that had robotic trucks and, and or whatever, you know, anything that was new and shiny and cutting edge and profitless and things that were merging with spe- special purpose acquisition companies known as blank check firms, those were going crazy. And so it was the the most garbagey stuff that for a while did the best during this period. And then you had older people like me saying, no, 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 I don't recommend that. And so the credibility of older, grayer people, the credibility of the Warren Buffetts of this world who had you know, been the masters of the market was dented. And anyway, they weren't on social media. And then the credibility of these people called Finfluencers who use their influence on social media to whether it was for their own material rewards or just their psychic rewards was through the roof. And they were the people that these young people listened to. And so, Brian, think about this. Think about both of us being on one of these Reddit forums, okay? And let's say that you're very sober and cerebral as I know you are, right? And you you go out and you explain why you bought a stock and you go out and you have 10 bullet points and this is the valuation and this is why I think it'll go up. I'm not obviously no guarantees, but this is whatever, kind of a normal discussion and your reasoning is good. And then I go on the same forum and I have a a meme and an emoji. And I say that I took out a second mortgage and put all of my money into long dated call options on this stock. Just the most speculative thing you can, you can possibly do. I'm a lot more fun than you are. And not only is it more exciting to see what I, I did and said, but the fact that it's more exciting will get me a lot more attention than you got. So now when someone comes to that forum, not only is my thing more exciting, but if someone comes to it 10 minutes after we both posted those things, they're not even gonna see what you posted. Despite all the time and attention that you put into making your recent argument, yours is not gonna get upvoted because it's boring. And mine is gonna get upvoted because it's crazy. And so now when I go onto this forum, I just opened up a trading account and I want to know how it's done. And I'm consulting my peers as a 24-year-old male will tend to do rather than, I don't know, reading the Wall Street Journal or Barron's or something. They're going to see my crazy thing. And, and maybe it'll influence them, if not to do that specific crazy thing, to do similarly 
crazy and wild things. That's just kind of how they how this group of people learned to invest, just kind of crazy wild swings for the fences. And anyway, they weren't doing it with a nest egg amassed over decades. And so it felt easier to do it. It was just a it was just funny. And that's that marriage of Silicon Valley and Wall Street in a lot of ways. So this gamification of investing came together right. in this incredible confluence of events. My, my question for you, and you touched on this in the book, where did the, there were those famous hearings right, where they trot these guys out, but it was almost like either a red herring or generals fighting the last war or... I mean, it totally missed the mark in terms of this larger conversation of where the regulatory environment stands on all this. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, so hearings were called. During this week, a lot of crazy stuff happened. And three days after that email to the editor at Penguin Random House that started the process of this book coming into existence, these stocks kept on going. They were the most traded securities in the world. And GameStop, AMC, BlackBerry, Bed Bath and Beyond, like all all these things that you know, even the the rump of long ago bankrupt blockbuster video went up a couple of thousand percent. I mean, and then for reasons I can explain, although they're a little bit boring and technical, trading had to be halted. But that became the source of outrage and conspiracies. And when trading was halted, and this populist movement that now you know this, this forum went from having maybe. 200,000 people on it at the beginning of my story to a million at the beginning of this week to 11 million by the end of the next month. So you have millions of people who are kind of jumping on the bandwagon. You had a million people a day opening accounts at Robinhood. They were bad as hell. And they felt like it was like, uh, we lose tails, you win or whatever, you know, that they, they were about to kind of blow a gigantic hole in Wall Street. All of a sudden their ability to do it was taken away because they couldn't buy the stocks. They could only sell. And there, there are highly technical reasons I can explain why that that happened, not a conspiracy, but it sure seemed like a conspiracy. I can see why they thought that. And that's what everyone in Washington thought too. And even if they didn't think that, even if they had some smart aid, it was like, no, actually it was because of whatever the DTCC and collateral and stuff like that, they weren't going to get into the nuances. The politicians, you know, this was January 28th. This was 22 days after the Capitol riot, you know, there was this populist online movement, non-aligned movement. And whether you were on the left or the right, and you had from AOC to Donald Trump Jr. to Ted Cruz to everybody jumping on, on the bandwagon in sympathy with this group of young people, that they were kind of robbed and we're going to rake Wall Street over the coals. And then the hearings, which which occurred you know, after it was kind of clear what had happened, they didn't really get into the details of why this happened because that and that, which was the original reason for the hearings being called they wanted to to rake some of these financiers over the coals and be sympathetic to the young revolutionaries who by that point many of them had lost a lot of money and were very mad ab- about it and and were mad even if they had made money because they thought that like their the whole thing had been short circuited so yeah it was a missed opportunity and it should have been an opportunity to discuss why are all these guys so rich i mean you had a few billionaires testifying there. How did they get to be billionaires? You know, not really risking a lot of their own money, but off of savers' money. Why? Why are there so many billionaires? You look at you look at the Forbes 400 list and take a look at it. Take a look at it now, and take a look at when it first came out, which is just the. I think it came out for the first time in 1982, and take a look at it now and see how many Wall Streeters were on it then, and how many are on it today. 
and you've had this dramatic fall in the cost of owning a mutual fund, of trading, placing a stock trade, all this stuff. So the, the actual cost of, of employing your savings has gone down a lot, which is a great thing. You know, you, could, you don't have to have a lot of money to, to get on the ladder on Wall Street anymore. Yet you have all these great fortunes that are somehow connected to finance, whether it's private equity or fund management or brokerage or whatever. Why, why is that? Why, how, isn't that incongruous? Like, why are there so many rich guys on Wall Street? And that wasn't really discussed. And of course, it was the House Financial Services Committee which accepts donations from, from people in financial services, and they did not rock the boat too much during those hearings, not surprisingly. Yeah, and it's all kind of gone, fade into the background now after the initial fanfare was done. And to your point earlier, some of these individuals did make a lot of money, these traders, these day traders, but far and away, the hedge fund guys, the insiders, the, the people who are putting call options on these things or shorting mm-hmm. them, et cetera, did wildly well. And so I think they would encourage more market participants, more retail traders. And that's the dichotomy you lay out in the book, whereas technology has been an incredible boon for the average investor in terms of lowering the, the friction costs and the cost of entry and the cost of investing. Meanwhile, the, the flip side of the coin is it's allowed for this gamification of day trading, which is really exacerbated, a, a problem that's existed for a long time within the market. Yeah, it's ironic. I mean, Let's put it this way. I mean, the status quo is about the same between the individual and Wall Street as it was decades ago, which is that there's a, there's a great book that came out, I think 1942 was the year it was published, called Where are the Customer's Yachts, which I highly recommend. One of the funniest books about Wall Street written by a guy who had been a broker on Wall Street and actually lost a lot of money in 1929. And you, you, know, you read it and some of the things are outdated, but most of the things are, are totally up to date. And it stems from actually a saying that it had existed on Wall Street decades before that, which is somebody goes down to Wall Street and there, I guess there used to be a marina literally near Wall Street, you know, down in lower Manhattan. And uh, somebody's admiring all the boats. So who owns them? Like, oh, it's all the stockbrokers and people who work in the banks. They're like, oh, where are the customers' yachts? And so it's kind of always been the same. There's this asymmetry where there obviously you do hear about people who, who do very well investing their savings and risking their savings on on Wall Street. But the constant is that the people who help them make money do very well. And those people used to do well no matter what, because there were these fixed commissions and things. Today, the hopeful thing, the hopeful message in my book is that that doesn't have to be the case anymore. You know, their finance actually has been democratized. You know, you can you can have a very fruitful long-term relationship with Wall Street as an individual saver whether someone is advising you on how to do it, whether you do it on your own, whatever. But it, Wall Street it really is a place where you can build wealth. And it's probably it's the easiest place to, to build wealth over the decades. You know, you can start your own business, you can invest in houses and fix them up and do whatever, but that's a lot harder and, and not risk-free either. And you can get a very lucrative job and you can be uh, a doctor or a lawyer and whatever, and, you know, you can make money, but that's it through addition. You know, you're getting your salary and you're adding it up. You, the way to multiply your wealth is is through compound interest. And, you know, all those charts, you, I'm sure you've, most of you have heard stories like if you had invested a dollar in the stock market back in 1926, it'd be worth so many more dollars today. Well, that unfortunately is theoretical because even just reinvesting the dividends cost you money and there were no index funds and it was expensive to transact. And so, yeah, if you played your cards right, you'd, you'd captured most of the market's return. But today you can, for something like 0.03%, 
if you want to do it yourself, you can you could own basically the broad stock market and and just forget about it, you know, and and just reinvest and put things on autopilot, which is great. But people still do all these dumb things. The industry has figured out a way through gamification for young people, through all kinds of appeals to fear and greed and whatever to get us to to overpay for the services on Wall Street and to be active. And specifically, the services that I speak about in this book, whether it's the the market makers who are the middlemen, who basically are the kind of the new stock exchanges, or the brokers like Robinhood or Meritrade or Retrade, their business depends, and especially Robinhood, their business depends purely on activity. They need you to be active. And Robinhood also benefits from its customers, not just being active, but being active and reckless. The fact that its customers were reckless made them more profitable to the people because Robinhood makes money by selling trades to companies that process the orders. And they make little sliver of profit on each trade or on average, they make a little sliver of profit on each trade. And those trades are more profitable if they're crazy trades, if they're in things that are more obscure or people aren't very careful when they place the trades. So recklessness and activity are are bad for you and they're good for the kind of companies that claim to be democratizing finance that are able to advertise $0 commissions. Yeah, and, and as we were almost up in an hour here, which thank you for all the time, but as we round out the conversation, you've got this great part of the book at the end called the bonus round. And I'm not asking you to give people financial advice, but yep. I mean, these are things that that are bromides that I, I hear all, over and over again, and they, they are true. I mean, you have a number of factors, characteristics that you've seen to be successful. Would you mind just giving us kind of a snapshot of some of your own kind of life lessons of, I mean, I don't want to frame it as how you can actually be Wall sure. Street, but but how you can how you can participate without playing in the game itself? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it on Wall Street, the average investor lags the averages substantially. It doesn't sound possible, but the average investor is below average. So if you were to, and, and people don't realize it often either, by the way, like if you ask people like, how do you think you've done the last 10 years? You know, they, their estimate of how, how they've done is tends to be wildly off, you know, unless they actually have looked it up and, and calculated. It's a diff- difficult calculation to do. So if you want, this is the, the single easiest thing that you can do. It's like telling you that you can be Arnold Schwarzenegger by sitting on the couch and eating Twinkies, right? You can beat about 85% of your neighbors and friends in terms of their stock market performance simply by avoiding costs and avoiding mistakes. I mean, basically you can, you can by kind of being cheap and lazy, by basically being in the market and, and being very inactive, you know, being very boring, buying boring things, not chasing new shiny things, not that you can't own tech stocks, but you, you know, a tech stock is like a needle in a haystack. Why don't you just own the whole haystack and the needle's still going to be in there rather than trying to find it and, and very likely failing. There are all kinds of people say, yeah, you know, I've got this, I follow so-and-so on the internet and he talked up the stock and it went up a lot. Fine. But I mean, those people tend not to boast about the things that they talked about that didn't go up. I mean, taking advice that's free or even advice that's paid often is often not very profitable. I mean, whether you can do it yourself or whether you need someone's handholding, which is totally fine to, to do it for a fee, you know, being slow and steady and allowing your wealth to compound and not frittering it away, not panicking, 
recognizing that when the, is the right time to turn off CNBC, which is the you know, days the market's plunging or surging, the really exciting times to be in the market, and just tuning it out as much as possible will stand you in very, very good stead as an individual investor. I mean, that is, that is one absolute piece of financial advice that I can give you. I'm not telling you what to buy. That's the kind of advice that I, I actually can't give you, and I'm not a financial advisor, but I can say with 100% certainty that the most successful individual investors tend to be those who are kind of sit back and, and let things develop. And obviously you have to save money in the first place. That's, you know, that goes without saying, but then, yeah, who, who basically kind of trust the process and don't get excited during very good and very bad times. Spencer, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been terrific. Uh, again, for those listening, check out his book, The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fe- Policing of Small Investors as well as your excellent work in the Wall Street Journal. Please do leave us a comment and a review if you enjoyed it and let us know what your favorite part of the conversation was. And and Spencer, something I asked folks to come on the show, and you may have just answered it, but I'd be curious. Do you have a daily practice in your life that helps bring you peace, maybe to your financial world? No, I'm afraid I don't. I don't have any, I don't meditate or do anything like that. I probably should. It's interestingly, like I'm, of course, into reading about all these people who, you know, are super duper successful. And the one of the constants I hear about is people who do a daily journal or people who meditate daily and stuff like that. And I keep setting New Year's resolutions to do stuff like that. But I don't. I go for like a long run and think about things. That's that's about it. No, there's nothing, no magic formula, I'm afraid. Well, Spencer, thanks again for joining us and best of luck with the book moving forward. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 